All right, children, you meet in the back corner who are attending children's church. The rest of you, let's open up our Bibles together to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 7. If somebody would get the light, please. Matthew chapter 7, and we are picking up at verse 24 through verse 29. So we're at Matthew Uh, Chapter 7, verse 24 to 29. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over there on the resource table so you can follow along with us as we unpack God's Word together. This is God's holy Word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Father, we come before you right now and we ask, Lord, for your divine assistance. We ask that you would help us to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray uh, that ultimately you would teach us what it truly means to build our our lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. All right, I came across a slideshow of epic construction fails on the internet this week, Uh, and there's some bad ones. There were doors in second and third stories of houses going to nowhere. So you're looking up second, third story, and there is just a door there. And it doesn't look like there was a door there because there was like an outside steps going to the house at one point. It just looks like for whatever reason, somebody read the blueprint wrong and said, you know what would make sense? A door going outside of the building. And maybe it costs too much to fix the siding, so we're just going to put the door there. There were water faucets where the water was coming out onto an electrical outlet. There were electrical outlets in showers, in bathtubs. There were examples of, of the roof where there were just basically the way they did the sloping, there was this pools of water. And I'm not talking about some standing water. Like It was like they were designing a, a koi pond on the roof. It was so bad. You see, construction fails like that. They're costly, they're unfortunate, they're confusing, and they can be catastrophic to a home owner builder, causing great damage and danger. You don't want to build wrongly. Well, each and every one of us here, children all the way up through adults, every one of us here is a home builder. We are all building our lives upon something. Every one of us. Every person here has a foundation they're building upon. It's either Jesus or you fill in the blank. Those are the two options. But failing in this build 
It's not just a little costly. It's not just a little frustrating. It has eternal consequences. So that's what we're going to see today as we consider the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. As we unpack our passage today, we're going to ask four, four questions about our building. Number one, we're going to ask, what are we building on? What's our foundation? Second question we're going to ask is, what elements will we face? What adversity is coming our way that's going to have an impact on whether or not uh, the house was built well? Third, we're going to ask the question, will our build stand the test? Will our, our strong construction or our poor construction be revealed? And then lastly, why does our response matter? And that's going to be more than just this parable that Jesus teaches. It's going to be the Sermon on the Mount as a whole as we wrap up that passage. So with that said, let's get started. Let's begin as we pick up at verse 24 and ask that question, what are we building on? As we mentioned, we are wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount uh, we will next week uh, do a sermon right after Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving. And then the following four weeks, we will be considering the book of Ruth for Christmas and Advent. We'll do a New Year's sermon and then we'll pick up, Lord willing, the beginning of January in the Gospel of Matthew at chapter 8. But right today, we're, we're wrapping up the chapter. If you remember last week, Jesus warned us of false conversions. That there are going to be a many a people who profess Jesus with their lips, and he's going to look at them on that day and say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you evildoer, you uh, worker of lawlessness. Well, this week he's exhorting on the need for true action in faith. So let's look at our, our foundation options. First of all, option number one, the rock. Read verse 24 with me. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Have you ever heard the saying, uh, that's just lip service? What lip service is, is when somebody says one thing with their lips and then their life is not lined up with what they're saying. A hypocrisy. For example, you know somebody who is talking all the time about they, how they don't have money and they're struggling with money and we're on a budget, a tight budget, and we're really being frugal right now and it's so difficult and you travel around and hang out with that person and they're buying coffees out everywhere and they're buying this and they're buying that and uh, well, we just streamed that new movie, well it's not, you know, we rented it and, and you're, you're, you're hearing Hey, we're here to save money. And then you look at them and I'm here to spend money. There's, there's a disconnect. And here's the danger. It is, it is very easy. And I guarantee there are some of you all here this morning who talk a good game for Jesus. You say, hey, I'm building my life on Jesus. Jesus is important to me. You might be able to answer some Bible questions and do all of that thing. But when we look, kind of zoom back and look at your life, there's a disconnect. And you see, Jesus is confronting this. Listen to what he says. Everyone then 
who hears these words, and then notice what is the next thing, and does them. So you hear and do. Hear and do. That's the distinction Jesus is making. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. You see, this is more than just talk, friends. Following Jesus will inevitably lead to action. We're still saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. We're, we're, we're not teaching a gospel of works. Please don't misunderstand. But what we are teaching, because Jesus taught it, is a person who has saving faith will obey his words. Philippians 4.9, listen to what Paul says. What you have heard and received and learned and seen in me, guess what he says to do? Practice these things. So the person who is building their life on the rock is the person who has a life of obedience, where it's faith in actions, where, where they live a life to please God. Now, please don't misunderstand this. A life of obedience is not a life of perfection. Because the life of perfection is one person. It's Jesus. It's the one in whom we're resting our salvation, resting our righteousness in. However, a person with little obedience probably doesn't have their life built on the rock. Well, how are you putting God's words into action? How obedient are you to the words of Christ? So that's foundation option number one, the rock. Foundation option number two, look at the sand. Read verse 26 with me. He says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It's hearing and not doing the words of him. I'll admit it, I am not the best, like Mr. Fix-It. Just not my strength. I will say, so many years into home ownership, I'm getting better. I'm, I'm not completely incompetent. Now, I won't be leaving the church tomorrow to start a a construction company or a renovation company, my family would starve to death. But there's times where, because of my inability, if I'm doing something around the house or I'm fixing something, I am going to follow the instructions. I'm not winging it. I will find a video of somebody doing what I'm doing and I'll watch it multiple times and do my best to duplicate it. Every now and then, though, I got a little cocky. I don't need the instructions. This is pretty self-explanatory. Until I got so far down the path, and then I realized I forgot something, I messed something up, and then I have to completely uninstall whatever I've done, and sometimes it's even beyond that, and there's just a lot of problems. And then I'm calling my friend or my neighbor. Uh, Yeah, that is what we see going on here. The person hears the words of Christ and says, no thank you. I'm good. I don't need them. I can do it my own way. James 1.23 speaks of this person. Anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, he goes away, and once 
He, at once, he forgets what he is like, he was like. It's the life of disobedience. It's foolishness. It is really the slogan of the Israelites at the time of Judges. We reference this often. What did they say? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is the person who builds their life on the sand. They look at God's word and see not commandments, but suggestions. They look at what God says, and it's kind of like they're at the buffet, kind of a la carte, and say, okay, I'll obey that. I'll obey that. Uh, don't like that one. I'm not going to obey there. It's just kind of this wishy-washy form of obedience. And, and friends, that is the life on sand. Well, are you currently building your life on sand? Is your life characterized by disobedience? Why are you ignoring what God clearly says? So that's the foundation we're building upon. I mean, notice there's not a third foundation. There is Jesus and whatever else. Whatever else, one or two. Obedience, disobedience. Christ, not Christ. But notice here as we continue to go on, that our house that we're building, it is not in climate-controlled environment. Notice that the elements target both houses. Read verse 25 with me. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Go down to verse 27. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Did you notice that? Did the storms hit only one of the two houses? Think of it spiritually speaking. One house is Christ. The other house is not Christ. You and I would probably think if a storm is not going to beat on which house, which house is the storm not going to beat on? Jesus, right? When I was growing up, one of the things we would do in the summer at my younger age, it's been so many years ago, is we would go to the Cleveland Browns training camp. It was in Berea. And we would go there and we would spend the day getting to watch them practice. And one of the things I even remember now, I mean, we're talking a good close to 40 years, is I remember when the quarterback would be practicing at the game, he would typically have a red jersey. And what the red jersey means, do not touch him. You touch him, you might be losing your job today as an NFL player. He was untouchable. He was protected. And I think there is a misconception amongst us as Christians that if we're followers of Jesus, and something this is taught, your life is going to be better. It's going to be safer. It's going to be more uh, affluent. It's going to be more prosperous. Friends, there's no guarantee of that reality. You could actually argue life might be a lot more difficult. Life might experience more persecution and suffering. Think of Job, remember? Job 1.8. God is speaking to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He's blameless and upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And he says that's because his life is so cushy. And then Jesus, or God says to him, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not stretch out your hand on him. You see, even in that moment, God does not shelter Job from the storms of life. God does not put a red jersey on Job and say, don't touch him. 
We read the story of Paul, and he's in Corinthians. He's got a list of all the things he's been he's been uh, stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been flogged. He's just constantly on the run. He's been without food. Once again, follower of Jesus who has gone through a lot of trials. Jesus, John 16, 33, in this world you might have a few tribulations. Is that what it says? In this world you will have tribulation. Trials will come, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think we have to be reminded as Christians and understand this answer. Will you face trials in this life? Everybody nod your head. Now, there's going to be a variation amongst us. And sometimes in God's grace and mercy, some people seem to not go through that much trial and turmoil in this world. But generally speaking, you and I will not be immune to the difficulties in this world. So we see the elements not only targeting both the houses, ultimately it's coming to test both houses. Notice the language used. The storm blows on them. It beats on them. It, it is going against them. Understand this. When it says the rains come down, this is not a sprinkling rain on a summer day that we kind of like and the kids want to go out and play in. You're not on the beach and it's a nice breeze that feels really good on a humid day. No, the storm that he's talking about is gale force winds, 70, 80 mile per hour winds, storm torrentially coming down where it can be an instant flood. That's the kind of storm he's speaking on. And what it's doing, it is revealing how well you built your house. I mean, we, we think about with cars, and we live in a region where lots of cars are being built. We got Jeep in Toledo. And one of the things they still do is they'll do crash tests. And they'll, they'll put, you know, the crash test dummy. And the point of that is not for it to go five miles an hour into the wall and have a little bit of a fender bender and see how bad it scratches the car. No, they'll take that car in a simulation and have it go 70 miles an hour into a wall and see the damage because what it's trying to do engineering-wise to reveal is this car going to stand the test in a real-life accident? And what the storms are doing in our verses today, in our passage, is revealing how well the house is built. James 1, 2, listen to what James speaks of with trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And listen to this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That there is an intentionality, that there is a purpose, there is a reason that God allows you and I to go through storms. Are you prepared for that? Are you seeing God's hand in the midst of the tests? So we got the foundation, right? Jesus or whatever. We see the elements, they, they target, they test 
both houses. Well, what's the aftermath? What, what happens when these storms come? Will the building stand? Let's look at the testing results. Verse 25. So this was the house on the rock. Rains fell, floods came, house blew, beat on the house. And what happened? It did not fall. It did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Notice verse 27. The rains fell, floods came, winds blew. This is the house on the sand. And they beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So we see the results between the two builds. One, shoddy construction falls Strong construction stands. I mean, I remember back in the, the days in school, probably junior high, we would do science labs, and I always, I always enjoyed when they would do this science lab of whether or not something would sink or float. It was testing buoyancy and like the density of items in water and all that kind of stuff. It was always fun because you're always guessing. I mean, obviously certain things you knew were going to float, but some things you thought would float and they don't float. Things that did float, they're like, I would assume that sunk. Well, this is kind of like that. You're wondering, is this going to stand? Is this not going to stand? Now, we need to understand a couple things. First century construction, not the same as today, all right? Not the same codes, not the same uh, building rules. But listen to what Jesus, similar parable Jesus teaches, Luke chapter 6, verse 48. He says, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So let, let's kind of zoom in to the initial parable. What's going on? Okay, we're in Israel, in, in the Middle East. It would have likely been in a valley region. And what I mean by that is this would have been an area that during the dry season, it would have been nice and dry, no problem with rain. But when the rain season would come, the area where this house was built would inevitably have water that would travel through the region. And kind of like even like a, a little bit of like a stream area kind of deal. And if it was a really bad rain, that area that once was dry would wreak havoc on the construction there. But what this person did, the person who built on the rock, is they dug deep. And they had the bedrock. They had the, the foundation while the other people chose to not build where there was a rock and a foundation. So when the storm came, there was great fall, destruction. I mean, think of it. We've seen videos of floods, right? We've seen videos where like even a building will all of a sudden get pushed away with the water because it was so strong and so intense. And that is what he's speaking of here. But we need to understand, not just in this test, the, the testing results, we need to understand there's a time reality to what Jesus is saying. First and foremost, I want us to understand this. There is a temporal nature to what Jesus is speaking of in this parable. And the temporal nature is this. Storms will come in our lives. 
I'm assuming everybody here has experienced storms in their life. And I'm not talking about the weather. I'm talking about trials, hardship, adversity. There are people here, we've been praying for months, who have cancer, battling cancer. That's a storm. There are people here who have lost their jobs. People here who have jobs but are struggling financially, maybe on the verge of bankruptcy. There are people here who have marital strife on the cusp of, of divorce. Maybe conflict with a, a, a wayward child. I mean, you fill in the blank. I guarantee everybody here would be able to identify, be able to relate with the storms of life. And Jesus warned about this. Matthew 13, 20, he says, the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, listen to what he says, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Because that person's rock foundation wasn't Jesus. When the storms came, it just kind of swept that faith away because it really wasn't faith. So there is a temporal nature to this, and I think we can all testify, for those of us here whose life is built on Jesus, when hardship and trials have come, I'm not saying we didn't feel pain. I'm not saying we didn't cry many tears. I'm not saying we didn't go through a hard, a difficult time. But what kept us going, what kept us moving on, what kept us persevering was Jesus. Amen? So that's the temporal nature to what Jesus is saying. But I don't want us to miss even probably the bigger point in light of the context, and that's this. There is an eschatological, eternal nature to what Jesus is speaking. And what he, he's teaching us is there is a storm coming. We see this if we watch the Weather Channel during hurricane season. It always amazes me there'll be this meteorologist down in Florida, like how did he get this job where he's out there, it's, it's just near when the real eye of the hurricane, so he's out there 70, 80 miles an hour, he's shaking, he's holding on to stuff, and I'm like, you don't get paid enough, I'm pretty confident to do what you're doing. Well, there is a storm brewing far worse than a hurricane, Far worse than a, a F5 tornado. That storm is God's wrath, God's judgment. We looked at it last week where he said on that day, that day is the day of judgment. He's going to come. Psalm 1-4 says this, the wicked are not so, but like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And the, the, the frightening thing that we're reading about today is that there are many who are building their lives on the sand. And when God's wrath, when God's judgment comes on that day, they're gonna be swept away. They're not gonna be standing. Are you ready for that day? Are you set? Because the reality is for you and I who trust in Christ, when that day comes, we're gonna be standing. On that day, we're not even afraid because 
our judgment has been dealt with in Christ and his perfect life, death, and resurrection. All right. So why does all this matter? Why does our response matter? I mean, we see the foundation, we see the elements, we see the, the tests. Why does this matter? Let's go on to verse 28. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Notice first the astonishment. The crowds were wowed by him. I mean, think about it. When is the last time you've been wowed by somebody? What are some examples of something that just astonished you with somebody in a positive way? I'm astonished all the time in the negative way, but like, like we're talking about positive wow. What would be an example of a wow moment for you? Anything? I was, I was watching a video. It, it, it always amazes me sometimes uh, where you'll see maybe a street performer and you have a very low bar of expectation, and all of a sudden the person starts singing, and you're like, wow. Did not see that coming. Like, how is this person on the street singing and not on the radio? Like, why do they not have a contract? We see that sometimes with sports. Somebody will have such an athletic performance that you're like, wow. Maybe you've seen something that's just beautiful, a sunset. Uh, you are visiting somewhere on a vacation, and you're just like, wow. That is the kind of response these people are having with Christ and his word. And that should be your response, right? That should be my response when we encounter Jesus. Why? Because he is the eternal son of God. He's not an ordinary guy. Do you understand that? Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I think why all of this matters is because at the end of the day, God's aim God's desire, God's focus for us is that we would be in awe of Jesus. That as we behold him, it would lead to wonder and worship. And I think for too many of us, we are so flooded by the world, we are so consumed by the things of this world that somehow, some way, Jesus has lost his wonder from our perspective. Because notice that he hasn't lost his, his glory. He hasn't lost his majesty. He hasn't lost his dominion. The problem is you and I, because our eyes are so fixed on this place, we're not beholding. So I think our response to the Sermon on the Mount, ultimately our response to Jesus, needs to be one of awe and wonder. But not only the astonishment, notice the authority it goes on and it says, for he was one teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So they're used to these teachers, kind of interesting, present some thought-provoking teaching here and there, but they weren't used to somebody who spoke in a way that they had authority. You understand? 
I mean, you and I, if we have a customer service issue, as a customer, we go to the store, and depending on who you are, some people are going to be more intense. Some people are going to be a little bit easy to be pushed over. I tend to trend in the more intense, probably a little too intense. But I always will ask when, when the normal customer service person's like, sorry, we can't help you. I always say, can I talk to somebody in what? In charge. You can't help me, but I guarantee there's somebody here that can help me. And then sometimes I'll talk to that person, and I'll say, well, is there somebody else more important than you? And they'll be like, no, I'm the most important. And then I usually will leave frustrated and that. But I want to talk to somebody in charge, somebody who is in control. And what we see Jesus as he's teaching them is they come to this epiphany, this reality that this guy is in charge. This guy has authority. 1 Corinthians 6.19, we're taught that we are not our own. We were bought with Christ by a price. Therefore, honor or glorify God in our body. And I think kind of big picture as we were wrapping up this sermon on the mount as a whole is we have a, a, a fork in the road. We have a defining moment. And the defining moment is this. If Jesus is who he says he is, if, if that is true, then you and I have a choice. We either obey, we, we, we submit to his reign, his lordship, or we don't. There's no middle ground. There's no fence straddling that is allowed. We bow to him and worship him and follow him. And I think for too many, there is this ambiguity, like we know he's who he says he is, we believe who he says he is-ish, but we also want to kind of live in our own life and live in our own way. And friends, that can't be the case. You have a choice. Are you viewing God's commands as optional? Are you living under, not him just as Savior, because we keep hearing that distinction. Well, he's my Savior. No, he needs to also be your Lord. That's salvation. There was a, a song many years ago, I'm dating myself, in the Christian uh, music world. It was by Big Tent Revival. It was called Two Sets of Joneses. It's based on this passage. Two Sets of Joneses. So he, he introduces in the beginning of the song to these two couples. There's Evelyn and Rothschild. So anybody need names for children? There's Rothschild. And then there's Reuben and Sue. Let me tell you the song. So Rothschild was lucky to marry so wealthy. Evelyn bought him a house on the beach. Reuben and Sue had nothing but Jesus, and each night they would pray they'd care for them each. Evelyn's daddy was proud of young Rothschild. He worked the late hours to be number one. But just newlyweds, their marriage got rocky. He's flying to Dallas. She's having a son. So you're starting to see Evelyn and Rothschild they're the world kind of couple. They're successful, they have money, but work, the, the cares of this world are the priority. They're building upon the rock of what? Not the, the rock, they're building on the foundation of what? The sand, all right? Well, Reuben was holding a Gideon's Bible. He screamed, it's a boy, so that everyone heard. The guys at the factory took a collection. Again, God provided for bills they had incurred. And the rains came down, it blew the four walls down, and the clouds they rolled away, one set of Joneses, 
was standing that day. So what is the point of this story? What am I trying to say? Is your life built on the rock of Christ Jesus or a sandy foundation you've managed to lay? Tells a little bit of after the story, and after the story is Evelyn and Rothschild, what happened to them? They got divorced. One tried to take the other one for all of the money that they had. Kind of that sandy foundation, but the family, even though they didn't have much, they had Jesus and they had more than enough. Friends, each and every one of us here is one set of these Joneses. Do you understand that? Each and every one of us here is a home builder. The question is, what is your foundation? Are you building on Jesus? Are you obeying him? Or are you building on the world, on yourself, on everything else, and disobeying him? Which one are you? And will you be standing on that day? Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. And for anybody here that is building on the foundation of sand, that's life is characterized by disobedience, that's resting in their own goodness, their own efforts, God, I pray that, Lord, you would convict them that, God, you would open up their eyes to see the foolishness of their building and that they would be unsettled, that they would be frightened by the potential, not just the potential, but the assurance of what will happen down the road. And I praise you for those of us here who are building our lives upon Jesus. We thank you for the foundation we thank you, thank you for the security of Christ. Lord, we could spend the whole day testifying to how you've been that foundation when storms have come in our lives and we were not swept away because we had Jesus. So we pray, God, that again and again we would continue to build our life upon the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.